Hey everybody, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. It is June 18th, 2016, and today we've got a cool show. We're talking about mixing for loudness. Now, what does this mean? Um, First of all, the loudness war is not something that I sort of uh, condone. I don't think mixes need to be, you know, super, super loud and compressed. I like mixes that are dynamic. I think they sound better. And most of the time these days, um, most playback services, YouTube, Spotify, your iPhone, all of those things have level matching features or at least are implementing them in some way or another. So whether you listen to you know this mix or that mix, it's going to analyze it and, uh, and play it back at roughly the same RMS level regardless of what the peak level is. So... Um, there's a couple ground rules and things that we need to talk about before we head on to talking about how do we get our mixes loud. Um, because I can tell you now, it's not all about the mastering. A lot of people think that loud mixes come from loud masters, and that's not true. Uh, loud masters start with loud mixes, and so we're going to talk about how to get loud mixes. But we've got to lay down a couple of ground rules and a couple of terms just to make sure we're all on the same page. So are you ready? Let's get started. So first things first, when we talk about loudness, what we're talking about is a couple of things. First of all, we're talking about apparent loudness. Now, this is different from actual loudness because actual loudness is going to be like, uh, you know, what the meters are saying. But apparent loudness is when something has the appearance of being loud, even if it's not. So, for example, there's been statements made over the years by many different mixers. If your mix sounds good quiet, it'll sound good loud. And what, But what they mean by that is if you're listening to your mix at a low level, but it still sounds like things are punchy and like they're, you know, the drummer's really cracking at those drums and. And, uh, you know, that all those things that that, that that sounds loud to the ear, like it's f- almost fooling your ear into sounding louder than it is. That's apparent loudness in tonality and in dynamics and in compression and all those things. It sounds loud to the ear regardless of what the meters say and regardless of how loud you're listening. You know, and ideally, if it sounds good quiet, uh, when you're mixing quietly and, you know, when when... Something, you know, on the meter might say, oh, well, it's only peaking at, uh, you know, negative six or whatever, but it sounds like super loud. And, and that's, again, we'll talk about that here in a second. We also have, like, actual loudness when it comes to, you know, what the meters say. Uh, and we have different types of metering standards. We have LUFS, L-U-F-S. We have RMS. We have the K system. We have the Nordic scale. We've got all kinds of different, like, loudness standards. And unfortunately, in the, you know, in the audio industry, there's not really any uh, sort of, like, guidelines that say this is how loud your stuff needs to be. Now, in the film industry and television, they have those types of standards. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that... That, uh, commercials follow that standard because we've all seen a television show and then a commercial comes on and it's crazy loud and you know it's really annoying but they're doing that to get your attention and it works but most of the time it's so loud and compressed that you don't even care what the product is and you don't buy it anyway so backfired right um, but in the film industry they have certain loudness standards and I think this is great because then it's not really a war and the level doesn't get, you know, pushed up higher and higher and higher to try to compete. Instead, there's just a standard and everyone follows it. And if you're below that standard or above that standard, it's like, hey, listen, 
you went above the line, it's too loud, it's not dynamic enough. Uh, and the other interesting thing in the film world is like, that's one of the primary elements of good film scoring is dynamics, you know, uh, and, and it's such a huge part of any movie, you know, it'll be really quiet and then all of a sudden some big loud sound will happen and it scares you and makes you jump in your seat and then, you know, the music starts or, you know, in a fight scene or whatever, a car chase scene, the music gets louder and faster and louder and, you know, it, it really adds to the experience of watching the movie and if, and if, you know, we played music that was as crushed as what's on the radio or was crushed as what's in Top 40. If we put that in a movie, it's going to sound small and lifeless. Um, but movies and the film industry and all that stuff, they, they get that, okay? So, um, I like I said, I don't like the loudness war. I think for all intents and purposes, we, we need to just ignore it. We need to ignore that people want our stuff loud. Now... I work for my clients, and if my clients say make it louder, I make it louder. Do I like doing that? No, because I think every time you push it louder, it compromises the audio quality. Um, I mean, I don't think. I, I know it compromises the audio quality. It starts chopping off your transients on your kicks and snares, and, uh, you know, it starts getting small and you know when you compare that to something else that was uh, recorded very dynamically and what's interesting too is is right now we're having a resurgence of vinyl and most vinyl records are pretty dynamic and they can't be overly compressed and they can't be overly harsh and they can't be you know well they also can't have way too much low end um but it's interesting how vinyl has made this resurgence uh, and everyone's like, oh, vinyl sounds so much better. On paper, vinyl sounds worse in every aspect. It has less dynamic range. It has more noise, less top end, less bottom end. You know, But there's something to be said for the punchiness of it because it's left more dynamic and because most of the time you're running it through a decent sounding system. That's another factor, I think, with vinyl is that people are comparing listening to music on their cheap you know, $10 bluetooth speaker versus a record player that has like a nice set of speakers and they're like vinyl sounds so much better <laughs> you know and it's like well you don't listen to vinyl on your bluetooth speaker do you um anyway point being um you know that's up for you to decide i can't tell you what to think i i highly recommend that you do your research on the loudness war and form your own opinion however i've said my piece you know, I'm done with that. But we're going to talk about some more terms and things like that. So let's keep going. Let's talk about a couple of terms. The first one I want to talk about is peak level. Now, peak level is very simple, okay? It's the true level of the peak, what that peak hits. So if you hit a snare drum and record it and it goes into, you know, Pro Tools or whatever your program you're using and the your channel says, you know, negative 6 dB FS. That is the peak level of that signal. That's the true peak level. Most meters, in fact, all of them as far as I know, within... Uh, now, I'm pretty sure you can alter some of them and change and, you know, adjust your preferences in Pro Tools and some, others, and some of the other programs. But for the most part, uh, the peak meters within a DAW are peak meters. They are not average meters. They're not VU meters. They're not any of that. They are peak meters. Now, peak level uh, for us in terms of loudness is pretty useless because peak level is not a good indicator of how loud something is. And I'll tell you why. Um, let's say we have... A song, a jazz song that is ride cymbal, you know, tss, 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 
fists and hi-hat the entire song. And then the last hit of the song, there's one loud crack snare hit. Okay, the peak meter will tell you, oh man, that, that snare hit went to zero. That must be how loud it is. But <laughs> the rest of the song, the majority of the song was incredibly quiet. You know, it might have been negative 24, uh, you know, on average. Uh, and so peak meters don't really tell us how loud something is. They just tell us the max, you know, what the peak is, what it's hitting. Um, now, RMS, which stands for root mean square, uh, is sort of a more accurate average level meter. Now, um, VU meters are also sort of an average level meter. Now, it's not perfect. It's never going to be exactly perfect because, again, you could have the same piece of material, you know, with the ride cymbal and the hi-hat for four minutes and then the one loud snare hit, and both the VU meter and the RMS meter would spike momentarily, uh, but the average level would sort of be uh, shown throughout the song. So you have to look at loudness as a function of time as well, not just what a meter says, but how the loudness changes over time. Um, we also have loofs and we have the Nordic scale and all this other stuff, but we're not getting into that. The, the main things we need to know are peak level, average level, and something called crest factor. Now, I've talked about this before, but if you're not familiar, get ready to be educated because it's really important. Crest factor is the difference between the peak level and the average level. And for the most part, that's really what allows something to sound loud because that's essentially the dynamics uh, and the dynamic range of that material from the loudest hits to the average, which is what you're hearing most of the time. Um, you know, if, if the whole band crashes out and everything goes like really quiet, I mean, yes, that's, that's the dynamic range. I mean, the whole dynamic range is from the highest level to the noise floor, right? Um, but for all intents and purposes, that's the dynamic range. The crest factor is the dynamic range of the material, um, you know, for all we really care about. Um, now, what we would consider a sort of middle-of-the-road, fairly hot but not insanely compressed dynamic range would be something like 8 or 10 dB. That is, generally speaking, hot enough for most things but not so hot that it starts to get really, really compressed and to sound awful. It is still pretty hot, and in some cases, that might be wrong for the specific music that you're doing. For example, uh, a dynamic range of 8 dB is probably too little for a classical or jazz recording, but it might be plenty fine, or it might not even be, uh, you know, crushed enough for a metal recording. But again... It's all sort of subjective. Uh, so 8 or 10 dB of, you know, a an RMS of 8 or 10, negative 8, negative 10 dB, uh, and therefore a dynamic range or a crest factor of 8 dB since our, since our ceiling is at zero, um, you know, that's just the, that's your crest factor is essentially crest factor equals RMS if your peak is 0.0 dBFS. Anyway, uh, something that would be a little more dynamic would be negative 12, negative 14, negative 16. Um, something that would be a little bit hotter, you know, maybe starting to get into like distorted crush territory would be like negative 7, negative 6, negative 5, God forbid, negative 4. Uh, you know, that's going to sound bad. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's going to sound bad. It's going to sound crushed. It's going to sound like it has zero dynamic and zero punch. Um, 
However, similarly, uh, something that has a dynamic range of maybe 20 dB, dB or 22 dB might be too dynamic for, you know, modern listening purposes. Because, you know, you put that song in your car and it disappears in the middle, you know, when you're driving. And, you know, negative 20, negative 22, that's, that's starting to get pretty dynamic um, for music's sake. Now, if it's, a f- you know, TV, film, you know, that's a little different because uh, they, can, they can keep their stuff pretty dynamic. But uh, for music listening, I'd say the happy medium is somewhere between, you know, negative 8 max and maybe negative 14, depending on the style of music. Now, that's just my preference. Some people might disagree with me. That's okay. And my opinion might change later, but for most things... I feel like that's a good range. Um, I want to warn you about trying to get things louder because, you know, naturally the, the phrase that everybody uses is, well, I want it to compete. I want it to be competitive. Um, and again, because most things have loudness matching, uh, you, you know, and, and also... I understand that most people listen to things on shuffle, you know, so to speak, on their iPhone or whatever. Like, they make playlists, and, you know, on Apple Music or Spotify, they make playlists, or they might jump around song to song. Um, But, I, you know, I've been in the car with friends of mine that aren't musicians and aren't engineers, and generally what happens is, if the song is too quiet, they just turn it up. I mean, they don't think about it, because they don't understand dynamics or dynamic range you know they're like oh this you know they, they're just like oh that's weird this song's a little quieter and they turn it up they don't think about it they don't say for some reason there's this mentality in the audio world like oh well if you have two songs next to each other and one of them's loud and one of them's quiet people are gonna think yours sucks and it's like literally nobody thinks that i mean the label probably thinks that and you know some of the band members might think that but nobody else thinks that um they just turn the song up Uh, And what's funny is some of the best-selling albums in the history of time, the best-selling albums in the history of time, are Dynamic, Um, Back in Black, Thriller, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Rumors from Fleetwood Mac. I mean, they're all very dynamic albums. Even the remastered versions are still left very dynamic. Um, And like I said, the resurgence of vinyl, I mean, those albums are dynamic. And there's something to be said for, you know, there have been many tests and and arguments made that more dynamic recordings have a longer career longevity. Um, Now, of course, that's sort of a bias test because it's like, well, we're dealing with some of the best albums of all time, some of the classic albums of all time. Also, we're dealing with a time in music where... You know, the music industry was a very different place. You couldn't just record a song, upload it to CD Baby, and it gets put on iTunes. That's not how the industry used to work, you know? And so it's a little bit different. You know, there's a, there's a lot more filters back in the day. And, you know, labels would take a chance, and now they're just concerned with money, and they're concerned with what can we sell and sell now? What's hot now? Let's keep doing that. Back in the day... You know, labels weren't concerned with that. They were, you know, labels would never sign an artist like Frank Zappa today. Um, They might not even sign Rush or Yes or any of those sort of progressive bands. Like, they might not sign any of those people. They'd be like, well, this is weird. Nobody wants that. You know, Um, and it's sad. But that's just kind of the nature of the beast. So, again, I promised myself I wouldn't rant too much about why you need dynamic recordings. But... Um, This whole podcast is intended to say, okay, well, 
You've made your deal with the devil. You need to make a loud recording. Now what? So let's get into that part of it. Um, First of all, I'd like to reiterate that loud masters aren't made because you have a really good mastering engineer. You know, sure, good mastering engineers can make something louder uh, and still retain a high quality but they're not the ones that make it loud in the first place. You know, we're not talking about a mastering engineer making something with a sort of a, a dynamic range of 20 dB into something with a dynamic range of 4 dB and do so cleanly. That's something that needs to be handled from the engineering perspective and from the mixing perspective. And we're going to talk about some various techniques to do that. All right, first let's talk about engineering. So as an engineer, you have a couple of things at your disposal. First, you have the source, okay? And uh, that is a, you know, a person playing an instrument in a room, uh, and that's your source. That's what you're trying to capture, the sound of a person playing an instrument in a room. Now, I'm not talking about you know, MIDI and VSTIs and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that yet. We'll get there in the mixing side, because um, those things have already been recorded, okay? We're not talking about that. Um, we have microphones. We have microphone choice and microphone positioning. And those are really our primary tools. Now, we also have EQs, compressors, uh, obviously mic preamps, things like that. Um, and those are also our tools. And we can use those to um, get slight bits of saturation. And I want you to keep in mind that um, the best way, in my opinion, to handle saturation and compression is in stages. Okay, If you try to compress something or saturate something, uh, and lop off 10 dB of compression or of saturation or you know transient saturation, it might sound very obvious and it might actually end up sounding like distortion. Uh, but if you do things subtly in multiple stages, um, it becomes a very different process. And I'll explain why. And I think I'm going to try to make a YouTube video about this also, but um, I haven't quite figured out how I want to do it. But let's say you uh, use a compressor and you are chopping off 1 dB um, with a 4 to 1 ratio. If you start bringing down that threshold lower and lower, you're starting to get into more of the sort of meat of the sound, right? Into more of like the average level stuff. So, you know, on a acoustic guitar, you have the transients poking up from the pick sound, you know, the plucking and or the strumming. But then you have sort of like the average, like the sustain of the guitar and the body of the guitar. And that's sort of the bigger chunk of the wave with the peaks poking through, right? Um, well, as you bring that threshold lower and lower, you're telling the compressor to react to those lower bits in the signal, those lower level pieces. Whereas if you set up multiple compressors um, with a higher threshold, you're telling the compressor only to react to that highest peak. So the compressor is continually reacting to peak, and then the next one's reacting to peak, and the next one's reacting to peak. And overall, Yes, you are slowly going down in in dynamic range by bringing those peaks lower and lower. But uh, by doing compression in multiple stages, you are doing you know you're doing a more subtle amount of peak control where you're not really triggering the compressor from the lower level signals. You're triggering it from the peaks only and. Um, Again, this would be easier to describe with a video, so be checking the YouTube page for a video on this. Um, you know, some, be something called like, you know, single compressor versus multiple or something like that. Um, anyway, but uh, so that is just one example of how, and and saturation kind of works the same way. Um, 
where you know little tiny bits of that transient are saturated and and are sort of lopped off now how can we use saturation effectively um i don't think many of my podcast listeners are using tape and so we have to kind of ignore that for this purpose now i could talk about it but i don't think it's going to help you uh i can talk about it a little bit in the mixing stage because we'll be talking about tape plugins but uh in the recording stage uh, a couple of things that you can do to sort of um, not get such peaky transients. One is you can use mics that have a transformer. That seems to help just a little bit to uh, make the transients a little bit fatter rather than so peaky. Uh, transformerless mics tend to, you know, capture a very accurate, um, a very accurate picture. Another thing that you can do is not use as many small diaphragm mics. Small diaphragm mics are generally going to capture a more accurate transient, particularly in the high frequencies. Now, this is great if you're trying to capture something accurately and cleanly, but in terms of uh, diaphragm size, if you use a larger diaphragm microphone, it's going to be harder to excite. You know, it's a larger piece of material, and um, so it's harder to excite. So, yes, it generally will have more low end, but the transient response will also not be as, you know, peaky and clear as a small diaphragm mic might be. You can also use ribbon mics, which again, sort of self-compress and don't have nearly as uh, pokey or peaky of a transient response. Um, tube microphones are also a great uh, option because you'll get a little bit of saturation from those tubes. Um, so imagine, why do you think it's so popular in the recording world to have a large diaphragm tube microphone? Why are they so sought after? Well, I mean, there's a reason, and it's not just because they sound good. A big part of it is how they react to the material. Now, that's one of those things that, um, you know, when you're looking for a microphone, you, you can read, you know, the specs and the noise specs and, you know, uh, self-noise, and you can read the sensitivity ratings, and you can read the frequency response graphs, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how dynamically that mic will respond. And uh, most people don't check the diaphragm size before they buy a mic and compare. They don't, you know, listen to demos and things like that. Uh, every mic's going to respond differently to transients. And that's one of the reasons why these big studios and classic recording studios and great engineers have so many different mics that they use because they all respond differently to things. Um, so... Out of the mic locker, you know, that's what you can choose. Try to avoid transformerless mics. Try to avoid, uh, you know, small diaphragm mics. Try to avoid, even try to avoid uh, non-tube mics or non-ribbon you know, mics if you want. So if you want sort of the smoothest uh, transient response, you're probably going to want a large diaphragm um, condenser mic that has a tube in it or a large long ribbon microphone. Um, there's a long ribbon and there's a short ribbon. I would pick the long ribbon for the exact same reasons, uh, as the, as the diaphragm argument. Uh, now moving on to preamps. Um, if you use the stock preamps in your interface, chances are they're going to be very clean, probably transformerless and have a very clear articulate sound. And that can be great again, depending on what you want, but there's a reason why many of us like to have external preamps. Uh, my interface doesn't have any preamps on it, so all of my preamps are external. And I've got preamps from Mercury and BAE and Vintech and Electrodyne and API. And, you know, those have a sort of slower 
what they call a slew rate in a lot of those preamps. Not, you know, we're not going to get into details, but basically those preamps react slower to audio signals than, say, a millennia preamp or a grace preamp, which are very fast, very articulate, very accurate, and have great transient response, which, again, those preamps are amazing for things like room mics. They're also amazing for offsetting microphones that might have a little bit too much transient coloration. For example, I love using the Millennia. Uh, I have a Millennia HV3C. I've had it for a long time, and I love it. I love using the Millennia on my ribbon mics um, for room mics because the ribbon mics are very dark and fat, at least what I, the one I use on my rooms, and, um, and it helps to sort of like still make sure that mic is clear and punchy and not too dark and fat and, you know, where it just gets muddy. Um, so you can use those to sort of offset the mics that you're using as well. Um, another thing that is really common is to drive your preamps a little bit harder. Don't be afraid of driving your preamps. You know, what you should be afraid of is distorting your converter. You don't want to do that for sure. That sounds terrible. Um, but you can drive the preamps a little bit hotter and then put, uh, microphone pads on the outside or line pads really is what you want to get, um, on the back on the output, uh, to reduce the output level. So you're driving the signal, uh, on that preamp to sort of shave off some of those transients, but then, um, the output is being padded down so that it doesn't clip your converter. Now, some preamps have an input and output volume, like universal audio preamps often do. Um, and a lot of the new or BAE preamps and Vintech preamps have that. Um, you got to be careful and look at, you know, what the, what the actual specs are of that preamp. Sometimes it's not... It's not an input and output level. Sometimes it's like a, you know, a rough control of like 5 dB clicks, and then the other one's like a plus minus 6, like a fine-tuned control uh, for level matching stereo. Uh, so you got to check for that. But um, if you don't have that luxury, a really cool device that you can buy is from a company called GAS, you know, G-A-S, and it's called the A10 Attenuator. And it basically is just a device that you plug into. It's got four channels, and it is four channels of line pads. Now, I modified mine. I've got one. And um, let's see here. It looks like negative 10, negative 15, negative 20, and negative 30 dB. Um, now, the reason why I modified mine is because there's no bypass switch. Um, so when you plug into the unit, it's minus 10 uh, it takes your signal down 10 dB. Um, so I put in four toggle switches in mine and bypassed the circuit entirely so I could go straight input to output or put it in the circuit and then uh, use it. Uh, so that way I don't have to... Because I run it in line with my preamps. I don't run it on the patch base. So I have four preamps that don't have output level controls and I run them directly into that. So that's why I do that. But... It's a really cool unit. It's not too expensive. You can usually find them used. And the website usually sells some like demo models or refurbished models or whatever. Um, very simple device. You know, great for... Uh, and you can go read about it on their website, but great for sort of 
driving your preamps and then trimming them back with that. Uh, I do this a lot on snare and kick, which are very likely uh, candidates for distorting transients. Um, and again, I'm not looking for distortion. Usually what I do is I, I click the gain up until the snare starts to distort, and then I click the gain back one from there so that only the louder hits will really distort. Um, but then I sort of also adjust my output level so that I'm not clipping anything or, or, or clipping my converters. Um, another option is if you have outboard compressors, uh, you can, cl you can drive your preamp, but then run it into a compressor, even if you're not compressing anything and just use the output gain or the makeup gain, turn that down so that you can pad it down, um, and like I said, you can also get the uh, the inline line pads that are built into an XLR connector. And you can put that on the output of your preamps so that you can drive them harder. Uh, and if you have some preamps that you like to use on kick or snare or whatever, you could keep them on there and they'd be fine. Now, if you only have a couple of preamps, you know, this probably isn't a good choice for you. But um, the next thing we'll move on to is other outboard gear like compressors and EQs. Now... A lot of people love using compressors on the way in, and same with EQs, I do. And every little bit of uh, coloration from each piece that you get is going to, um, going to affect the transients and affect the way the signal sounds. Uh, for example, if you use any sort of tube gear, it's going to have a really brilliant way of sort of chopping those transients in a natural you know, non-destructive way, especially if we're talking about something that is Veramu, uh, like a Manly Veramu compressor or a Stay Level or a 176 compressor. Those have a really fantastic way of just sort of shaving off those transients. Um, something that's slower and perhaps a VCA design like a DBX160 will actually accentuate those transients. Uh, so be careful of that. Sometimes that's what you want, but, um, you know, the DBX160 has a great way of gelling something and making it nice and punchy, but it will accentuate those transients and make them pop a little bit more. Um, but something like an LA-2A or a 176 or a stay level or a tube tech compressor or, you know, even like, um, like a Poltec style EQ that's a, you know, tube design will add just a little bit of coloration. And again, this is all, these are all tiny bits, mostly probably inaudible bits for the most part, if you, you know, List, tried to listen to them on their own um, you know it just seems to be okay it's, there's a little bit of extra mojo on that and you know probably a tiny bit of transient shaping and you know shaving off uh, but maybe a little bit of extra added top end or harmonic content um, so again that helps uh, now I'd also like to say a word about harmonics um, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the mixing portion of this but harmonics are essentially octaves and fifths and octaves and fifths uh, and things like that above your fundamental tone. And that's what makes every instrument sound the way it does. Um, but the th important thing to keep in mind is that most of the time when we talk about like harmonics in, uh, in the studio or in the mix situation or in a recording situation, we're talking about harmonic distortion. And when you start to distort something, distortion is essentially an infinite collection of harmonics. And depending on how much distortion that you have, um, you know, you'll get more and more harmonics. So if you have a snare drum, if you hit a snare drum that's tuned, you know, pretty normal, maybe a little bit low, you might have a, your fundamental pitch at 180 hertz. 
Um, and that snare pitch is going to have its own harmonics just based on the sound of the drum. You know, you'll have some crack and you'll have some mid-range ring and you'll have some of this and that. But if you drive that into a preamp, um, that preamp is going to accentuate the harmonics that are above that fundamental. So you get naturally more mid-range and uh, more more top-end too. But, you know, as, as the harmonics go higher, like, you know, your second harmonic, third harmonic, etc., um, it gets it gets quieter and quieter in volume, generally speaking. So, if you have 180, your 360 hertz is probably going to be accentuated, and then from there, your you know 720 will be accentuated, and perhaps even uh, you know your 540. Uh, so, yeah. Um, as you go through analog style, you know, vintage styled preamps, you know, or tube mics or tube compressors or EQs or even like a good API EQ or a good Neve EQ or even an 1176, you'll get more of these harmonics. And again, I'm, I'm going to try to make this in a video so you can understand this, but uh, this would be probably easier to describe in a video. But um, harmonic content adds, again, character and quality in that mid-range. And you're essentially adding musical content that sounds good and is um, rich and sounds louder also because, you know, distortion makes something sound louder uh, because it chops off those transients while adding sort of extra mids and highs. Um, and and mid-range and, and high mids are what makes things sound loud to us. Um, you know, lows and highs don't really make things sound loud per se um i mean they can but you know that's not really what gets us apparent loudness so um we talked about the sort of engineering side i hope all this made sense to you you know that there could easily be you know in any given chain um you know there could easily be uh 10 different stages of coloration and subtle transient chopping and, you know, subtle saturation that add up to a contained sound of something that is, you know, um, for example, I'll, I'll go in order. Let's say we had a tube microphone. Okay. That's one stage. You also have, you know, the tube mic has a an output transformer. Okay. That's another stage. Um, then you go into your preamp, which you might drive just a, just a little bit. And then you go into an outboard EQ that's a tube unit. Okay. Then you might, you know, when you're boosting on that, uh, you know, you're adding just a tiny bit of coloration. Uh, because again, something like the Pultec is, uh, you know, you, you don't necessarily do a lot of cutting. I mean, there are attenuate buttons on there, but for the most part, we love the Pultec because you boost. Uh, so that's another interesting feature is that, a lot of people in, uh, you know, a lot of noobs will say things like, oh, I only cut EQ. I, you know, I only do this. I, you know, and in the analog domain, a lot of people boost. I love boosting in the analog domain because you're driving those amplifiers a little bit harder when you boost. Uh, in the digital domain, it doesn't make any difference. Boosting and cutting are the exact same. Um, if you disagree with me, feel free to email me and I can debunk the myth uh, that <laughs> boosting and cutting are different. Uh, they're really not, especially in the digital domain. Now, in the analog domain, they are different because in the analog domain, you're going to be uh, boosting and adding more to that amplifier because it's almost like a guitar amp. You know, if you boost, if you take a guitar amp with the bass, mid, and treble up the middle, and then you crank each one of them, bass, mid, treble, 
all the way up, that amp is going to be more distorted and louder because it's driving that amplifier. It's the same in a mic preamp with an EQ. Um, you know, as you boost 200 hertz or boost 100 hertz or boost 10K or boost whatever, um, it's going to drive that amplifier just a little bit more. Uh, and we're not talking about like guitar amp distortion. We're talking about very subtle harmonic distortion. Um, so we run into our preamp, we drive that a little bit, you run into a nice tube EQ, then you run into maybe a tube compressor, or maybe an 1176, and then you run into an attenuator to make sure that it doesn't clip, which again will sort of add its own little bit of, uh, it's, you know, chopping a little bit of that transient, uh, and then you finally go into Pro Tools or whatever, and, you know, we might have chopped off, without really even being able to hear it, 6 dB of transient information, um, and, you know, some, uh, Bob Katz in his book talks about how tape, uh, would easily give them a free, what he says, quote, f- a free 6 dB, um, because it would sort of saturate and compress up to 6 dB without really even noticing it that much. I mean, you could hear it, but it wasn't like, oh, now it's so much worse. It sounds compressed because compression and saturation are different things. Uh, and again, when we sort of, um, when we stage things in multiple stages, that's more of a saturation type concept rather than a compression concept. Um, because saturation is generally speaking, uh, v- fairly subtle, uh, at the lower stages and, um, and is, and is just slowly doing work on those transients. Um, let's move on to the mixing side because we can talk about some of the ways that we, uh, that we can check this stuff out. So a friend of a friend sent me a mix done by CLA and uh, we all know CLA, Chris Lord-Algy. Um, he's a very popular mixer and very famous. Uh, and he has sort of a reputation for making things, you know, over-compressed or, you know, at least compressed. Um, I don't necessarily think all his mixes are that way. But if nothing else, he definitely, all the mixes he seems to do end up loud. And for the longest time, I thought that was because a lot of his stuff was mastered by Ted Jensen. And Ted Jensen is one of the few mastering engineers in the world, in my opinion, that can make things really loud and still sound good. Um, Now, Ted Jensen's about $850 a song, but you didn't hear that from me. Uh, (laughs) Um... So, basically, I I tried to think, you know, what is the deal here? Because CLA's mix, Unmastered, was very loud. I mean, the dynamic range was maybe 8 dB, and, you know, the RMS was, you know, his peaks maybe went up to negative 1 or 2, but, you know, it was like a negative 10 RMS, but his dynamic range was only 8 dB. So, he didn't really leave a lot of room for the mastering engineer to work. However... At the same time, it's like, well, what does the mastering engineer need to do? I mean, what what is it that he's really going to do? Maybe tweak the EQ a little bit or, uh, you know, uh, add a little bit of limiting just for the peaks, you know. But, um, you know, CLA mixes on a console, and he might make you think that he mixes with plugins, but 90% of the time, 99% of the time, really, he mixes on the console. I mean, why wouldn't he? He's got a console. Um, and he also has a bunch of outboard gear and I've heard him talk about, uh, how he makes his stuff loud and he does the same things that I was talking about, um, while recording, you know, he, he drives those EQs in, you know, into the front end of that console and he drives his line amps and he drives his console and pushes it into the red. 
Um, now, again, this is analog, so it's a little bit different than the digital domain. I'm assuming most of you don't have consoles, so I'm not going to talk about that too much. And I'm assuming a lot of you don't even have outboard gear, and that's okay too. But keep in mind that if you want things to be loud and proud and uh, and still sound pretty good, you're going to have to do things in stages. You're going to have to you know, find ways to uh, tame the transient response by either using different mics or you know, whatever, different mic pre's, maybe some outboard gear if you can afford it. Um, but then in the box, when we're mixing, you have to deal with that as well. Um, so first things first, let's talk about saturation. Now, saturation, there are so many different saturation plugins, and I've done some shootouts with them before, and, you know, I like a lot of them, and I dislike a lot of them. So, um, overall, you know, you can add saturation to almost anything and get away with it, because if you use it subtly, which is, again, how it generally sounds best, um, you know, it can really make a big impact in the end. And a lot of times what guys will do is they'll put on a saturation plug-in, and they'll listen into the point when it seems like it's just barely distorting, and then they're like, well, I guess that's, you know, what it is. But that's not really the best way to do it. Um, I would do it kind of like I described on my mic preamps. So, you know, turn up the saturation to the point where you hear it distorting and then click it back a little bit and right to the point when you kind of stop hear it distorting. And most likely you will still be saturating that signal just a little bit. Um, maybe even, you know, a lot, but... Um, it's just enough where you can't hear it. And that's kind of the point. Like saturation is, is not always a really, uh, obvious thing. It doesn't always sound like distortion. Um, you know, that's just, that's just a myth. Okay. Saturation can be incredibly subtle. Um, so I'm going to pull up uh, a list. I did a, I did a shootout of a bunch of different saturation plugins and some of them were also like, uh, compressors. Um, but I'm going to read you some of my findings. All right. So I tested a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of different saturation plugins. Um, some of them are from Waves. Some of them are from UBK. Some of them are from Sound Toys. I got one from Isotope. Um, basically I, what I did was I took a, uh, an acoustic guitar, which I like for doing transient tests because there's a very clear sort of RMS level, like a constant sort of level of the body resonating and, you know, the chords ringing, but then there's these peaks that pop out. So I used an acoustic guitar, uh, recorded it with a super clean mic and a super clean preamp and a thin pick, which will also accentuate those peaks. Um, you know, that's another thing that you can tweak. I, I should have mentioned before is that there are lots of little tiny things that you can tweak on the instrument itself. You know, pull the tone knob back just a little bit and use a thicker pick and you'll get a thicker tone with less peaky transients on whatever it may be. Uh, on drums, I find a similar thing. You get a little bit more of a peaky sound when you use smaller sticks. Now, sometimes that's the right choice if you need more definition, but, um, you know, slightly bigger sticks will get you a thicker sound. Uh, okay, anyway, so I tested a bunch of different plugins, and basically, I won't go into the details, but I used an acoustic guitar, uh, I ran it through each of these plugins and tried to get about the, you know, same amount of saturation. I measured the uh, RMS level, the peak level, the crest factor, and I also measured it in loofs. And long story short, I found that my favorite plugins for saturation that I, that I found uh, sounded good and, uh, and weren't too crazy, like, distorted per se. Uh, I really liked the uh, Sound Toys Decapitator. I use that plugin a lot. 
Um, I really liked the UBK one uh, from Gregory Scott over at UBK. I really like the saturation in that plugin. Uh, I liked the Waves Sheps uh, 73. Um, that kind of surprised me because I, I like that plugin pretty well, but I don't use it a whole lot. But the saturation end I actually really liked. I liked the slate, uh, the slate digital stuff, but it was a lot more subtle. Uh, the saturation in that was uh, honestly probably more realistic, uh, but quite subtle uh, when it comes to. Uh, I used the slate VTM as well as um, the slate virtual uh, console collection. And the saturation in both of those is very good. It's very subtle, nice and subtle, even driven pretty hard. It's still fairly, you know, it's not like crazy distorted. Uh, whereas the saturation on the Waves Sheps 1073 is a little harder to control and it's a little bit more saturated. Um, I liked the uh, Native Instruments 1176 uh, saturation. That actually has a very nice saturation in it. Um, and I liked Isotope Trash pretty well, uh, but that's quite a hefty plugin to use just for saturation. That's a little bit, you know, it, you have to be real careful with it because it can get pretty crazy. Uh, and I liked the uh, Waves Kramer Tape set very subtly. Uh, what's funny is I really like that Waves Kramer Tape plugin. It doesn't sound anything like tape to me, uh, but if used very subtly, it can sound really cool. Uh, and these are basically my favorites. Uh, there were a couple others that uh, sort of got honorable mention. Um, but overall, my favorite, if I had to rate them, my favorites were uh, Decapitator, uh, and the UBK one. And, um, I already own decapitator and I use it really often, but, uh, I was actually demoing the UBK one. And this is the shootout that I did, um, to push me over the edge to buy it. I really, really have enjoyed using that plugin for saturation and compression. Uh, so saturation can be used on virtually anything, a vocal, a snare drum, a kick drum. Uh, and again, What's really nice about the Decapitator and also the UBK-1 is that they have a mix control. So not only can you saturate something, um, but you can blend in some of the dry signal. So if you're having a hard time hearing the saturation um, or you or just want to get some cool effects, you can saturate it maybe a little bit more than you want, but then blend, you know, but then blend in some of that dry signal to kind of retain some of that transient, original transient without getting too crazy peaky. Um, so those are all options for saturation. Use them, demo them, you know, they're all great. Um, but start thinking about that sort of thing. Um, good culprits for saturation are basically anything that would be in a, in a modern rock or pop rock mix. So, uh, acoustic guitar, um, banjo, uh, mandolin, uh, banjo and mandolin are very difficult because they're very transient heavy. Um, they're really difficult to deal with, especially you know if you have an amateur banjo player. If you have a really great banjo player, they're going to play nice and even, and it's going to sound very fluid, and the transients won't be crazy, but those can be difficult to capture. Uh, it's one reason why I like using ribbon mics on banjos. Um, unfortunately, banjos are really quiet, and so sometimes that can be an issue, but anyway... Um, so acoustic guitar, banjo, mandolin, snare, kick, toms, overheads, uh, bass guitar. Bass guitar can handle a lot of distortion, oddly enough. It can handle more distortion than you probably think, and it kind of 
disappears into the mix and you don't even really notice it. Now you might have to back it off in a section where, you know, it's like if the bass is kind of heard, like if it's like an intro with like one guitar or, or a piano and a bass, you might hear that distortion, but in the track, uh, you're probably not going to hear it. Um, that's one reason I like having bass split to multiple tracks. So I'll have like a bass DI track and then a bass amp track. And sometimes I'll have a bass fuzz track. I call it fuzz, but it's really just heavily distorted. And if the bass is ever by itself or sort of in a quiet part or an intro or something, I'll just mute the other tracks. But then once the band plays, I'll push in the, uh, you know, the fuzz track or the amp track or push those up. Um, vocals, uh, backing vocals, I mean, literally almost anything could handle some saturation. Now, luckily, uh, electric guitar, clean, uh, you know, electric guitar, clean electric guitar generally doesn't need a lot of saturation and it kind of defeats the purpose of being clean. Um, but it can handle quite a bit of compression. Uh, distorted guitar doesn't really need any saturation or compression because it's already distorted and there's not really any peak issues. Um, piano is something that I prefer to compress rather than saturate, but that's not saying that I don't use saturation on piano sometimes. Um, I'm more likely to use parallel saturation on a piano. Um, but again, this is none of this stuff is like distortion as we commonly think of it, like on a guitar amp or like a pedal. It's very subtle, you know, it's very subtle bits of saturation distortion. If you're having trouble, uh, what I recommend doing is, you know, get a, get a saturation plug-in of, of your choice. Um, you know, even the free saturation plug-in from, uh, from Softube, there's a free saturation, uh, a single knob saturation plugin that's really cool. Uh, so go try that out if you don't have any. Um, and watch, you know, get something really peaky, like a snare drum or an acoustic guitar, you know, played with a thin pick and recorded with a small diaphragm mic. Um, and put the plug-in on and subtly bring up that saturation and watch what the peaks do. Watch what the meters do. Uh, another thing that you can do, and what I'll probably end up putting on the video, is... Uh, is duplicate the track and then render it and bring it in so you can see what the effect was, you know, after you rendered the sound. Um, that way you can really see and start to realize like, wow, that's actually chopping off quite a bit of the transient, but it doesn't sound like it. Um, at least it doesn't sound like it a lot. Um, you know, we, our ears cannot pick up on distortion if it's under a certain number of milliseconds. Uh, there've been a bunch of numbers thrown around, but, uh, you know, some people have said if it's under six milliseconds, uh, you know, under 10 milliseconds, some people have said like 20, some people have said one millisecond. Uh, there's lots of different opinions on that, but basically our ears aren't, uh, fine tuned enough to be able to hear saturation if it's that quick. Um, now, again, as you start getting close, you know, farther and farther down into that transient and you get more into the meat of the sound, um, that saturation will be lasting longer and, and it'll be heard more. Uh, whereas if you're just affecting the peaks just little by little, um, it'll, it'll be very difficult to hear. So watch the meters, watch the peak meters. This is a situation where the peak meters are actually useful as you push on some saturation and watch what it does to those peaks um, or render, you know, render it out and bring it back in to compare the waveforms. Um, next thing we'll talk about is compression. Now, a guy like CLA loves his compression. 
Uh, and he, you know, he doesn't really over compress things. And that's kind of the myth about CLA is that he just slams compressors. And, you know, every interview I've seen with him and, uh, you know, article and, and any like mixed demo, like on that on YouTube or whatever of him talking about stuff, he doesn't really compress that much. What he does is saturate and he saturates his console and he does a lot of parallel compression. But the other thing that, you know, a lot of people think is, you know, he compresses his snare and his drums really heavily, but he uses samples, drum samples, which might already be compressed. And if he compresses his drum bus and he compresses his master bus and then it's sent to mastering, it's going to wind up sounding pretty compressed, especially if the sample was already compressed to begin with. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. That's the other part of this equation, is that none of this stuff needs to be done in one stage. You don't have to saturate something a lot, like a vocal a lot. Like, you can saturate, uh, you know, the vocal track, the lead vocal, just a little bit, and then you can saturate the backing vocals maybe a little bit more, because they don't need to poke out quite as much as the lead vocal. And then you can, say, create a bus for all the vocals, you know, that maybe has a tiny bit of compression, maybe just like a dB or like a half dB, just a little bit. Um, and then you might have a compressor on your master bus. The same thing could go for snare or drums, right? So you might have a compressor on your snare track, and then you might have a little bit of saturation also. Uh, some people have asked me, should I put saturation before or after compression? Um, me personally... I kind of go back and forth. It depends what it is. Try it out. You know, it's very easy in the box to just drag a plug-in down and see if it sounds better after. Um, my guess would be probably before, would be my natural tendency to put the saturation before um, because that would sort of shave off that transient a little bit before compressing. Um, which is kind of like, you know, if you were recording something on tape or with a console... That's what would happen. It would saturate, and then you'd compress it in the mix, right? So if you're using, you know, saturation, I would personally put it before the compressor, um, particularly on, like, drums or bass or something. Um, on a vocal, I might put it after, just because I want to make it a little bit more subtle, maybe, or I might put it in parallel on a separate channel or something, um, you know, where, like, one channel of the vocal is... Uh, like EQ'd and compressed, but the other channel is EQ'd and saturated and not, um, you know, and like that's maybe heavily saturated, but I'm just blending in a little bit of it. Uh, there, again, it's kind of like it always depends on on the song and my mood and all that stuff. Um, but like I said, on snare, you could have a compressor and maybe a little saturation on the snare, and then you maybe have a compressor on the drum bus, and then you might have a compressor on the master bus, and none of these things have to be doing a lot of compression. You know, your drum bus might only be doing 2, 3 dB of compression, your master bus might only be doing 1 or 2 dB of compression, but that's the point. Um, you can't look at, you know, loudness as a single thing. It is multiple stages. The other factor in getting loud mixes is making sure that the frequency spectrum is represented in such a way that uh, it sort of not fools our ear, but essentially convinces our ear that things are louder than they are. And what that means is by retaining mid-range. And when I say mid-range, I mean the whole mid-range from the low mids to the mids and the high mids. So maybe... 200, 150 hertz, all the way up to maybe 5 or 6K. 
um, depending on how you view mid-range, you know. Um, low mids to me are like, you know, 200 to 500, and then maybe 150 to 500, uh, and then mids are maybe 500 to 2 or 3K, and then high mids, well, I would say maybe to 2K or 1.5K, and then high mids are you know, 2K to 5 or 6K, something like that. Um, and the rest, you could even say above 5K is highs and below 150 is lows. Um, that's beside the point. The point is your mix cannot be scooped. Scooped does not sound loud. Um, what sounds loud to our ears is a healthy mid-range. Now, mid-range I'm defining as, you know, the whole mid-range, low mids, high mids, and mids. So maybe 200 hertz to 5K, total range. Um, you know, you need a healthy amount of that stuff. Now, I'm not saying just go and boost it. That's not the way to do it. Again, what have we learned? It's a bunch of little things added up. It's never just one thing. You can't just put that on your master and expect it to make your mix loud. Now, why does mid-range need to be present in order for our mixes to sound loud? Well, one of the main reasons is because our ears are most sensitive to mid-range, specifically, uh, you know, the 2, 3, 4, 5K region, uh, the speech frequencies are where our ears are most sensitive to mid-range. And sometimes when I am trying to make a mix loud or, you know, in mastering, I'll have to push that region a little bit more than I want to. And because I have to push it there and because it wasn't mixed for loudness, um, it, it doesn't quite sound right. So I can't get away with pushing a ton of it or the mix starts to sound a little quacky because they might have plenty of 2-3K on their kick, but they don't have enough 2-3K on their vocal or on their guitars. And maybe they have too much on their piano. And so without that in mind, you know, they have to, it has to be mixed that way. It has to be mixed with a healthy balance of mid-range. You're going to have to have, for example, on a kick drum, uh, yes, you can scoop out your mid-range, and that is great because it helps to leave a lot of space for other things. However, that doesn't make that kick drum sound loud, per se. Um, sometimes you're going to need a little bit of mid-range added with a sample or with reverb or with, uh, or with EQ um, to, or maybe in the room mics or something like that to make sure that that kick has a little bit of presence in that 500 to 1K range. So there's kind of a bah in there, you know, as opposed to the low subby boom and the high click. They're almost, you know, it helps to have a little bit of, you know, I don't know how else to describe it other than bah, because that's what it sounds like. You know, it's like 800, 1K, something like that, where it's like uh, you hear a little bit of that, you know, kick in the room sound. Um, <clears throat> and kind of same with the snare. Some guys will scoop out their, you know, 1K on a snare uh, because it sounds kind of papery. Well, sometimes you need to leave that in there. Now, again, on a lot of things, you can get away with scooping low mids, you know, 200, 300, 400 to help clear space for vocals and guitars and keys, um, which all sound decently good in that region and uh, and need to be heard. But uh, kick drum doesn't necessarily need a ton of like two, three, four hundred. Um, and snare doesn't necessarily need a lot of, you know, 500, uh, 600, or even 400. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, just dump it. Again, use your instincts and, and turn it down to where, you know, it works. But a lot of guys will instinctively sort of cut maybe like 1K or 2K from their snare to keep it from getting papery. But uh, you might need to leave a little bit of that in there. Um, similarly, you know... Um, Things that things that have large transients, sometimes the low transients of kick and snare, will trigger your compressors and your limiters 
um, so easily. So you got to make sure that those are in check. I highly recommend when mixing for loudness and when practicing mixing for loudness, you check out a frequency analyzer, uh, an FFT or fast Fourier, fast Fourier transform on your master bus. So this is something like Waves PAZ or the Blue Cat uh, analyzer or Span from Voxingo. There's a handful of them, and check out how your um, how your overall frequency balance looks. Um, what I find is that. Uh, I'll use Waves PAZ because I think it's the most common one that people seem to have. Um, if you don't have it, you know, it's a pretty cheap plug-in. I recommend getting it. It's, you know, it's not the most accurate. I would say that the Blue Cat one and the Span, and Span are more accurate for sure. Uh, but the Waves one is simple and gives you a general picture of what's happening. Um, generally speaking, I find that a nice linear curve from the kick drum transient down at, you know, whatever, 40, 50, 60 hertz, all the way down to the high end should be a nice linear slope, um, you know, going downward. Now, that's not always going to be the case, so don't don't live by that rule. Some stuff is not going to be that way, but I'm talking about for perhaps a general, like, rock song uh, with drums, bass, guitars, and vocals. That's probably about what it should look like. Um, now, how you fill that up is what makes you a mixer, you know, like... Is that going to be drums and like heavy guitars in the mid-range and, you know, bass without much mid-range and then vocals, you know, put the presence higher? You know, that's kind of what makes you a mixer and, and what it defines how good you are essentially is how you can make the ent- everything in that mix work. Uh, in its own zone and in its own space, because all of you have experienced uh, the same thing at one point or another. I've experienced this, where you make a mix that actually sounds pretty good on its own, but then you take it somewhere and compared to other mixes, it just sounds strange. Now, it might not have like too much bass or too much this or too much that, but just the whole balance doesn't seem right. And that's probably because you push the energy in the wrong spot on certain instruments. Now, I can't tell you, you know, where to push the energy on your instruments because it's different for everything. But I can give you a couple of general guidelines or at least my opinions that I seem to find. Um, first of all, kick and snare. Um, those will probably have their own big transients, you know, kick probably between 50 and 80 and snare somewhere between 150 and 220. Um, in between those things, you'll probably have some bass and some toms and some other things like that. Uh, you got to make sure that your kick and snare transients are not too loud. Check on a, on a frequency analyzer and see that your, you know, your like kick transient and your snare transient aren't poking out so loud, um, because that's a big thing. And what happens is if they're too loud down in the bottom end, what you need to do is shift the energy up. So you'll turn down those, you'll turn down the kick and snare, but then add back some presence in the mid-range, you know, uh, anywhere from 500 or 600 to, uh, you know, 3, 4, 5K to get a little bit more of attack. And so you're shifting that energy. That's what I'm talking about by shifting the energy. So, um, you know, it's kind of like a tilt, you know, where you're you're taking energy away from one section but adding the same amount back to the other. So um, my favorite method for doing that is, uh, so like on the kick and snare, if you look at your frequency analyzer and you've got these big kick and snare transients poking through, um, what you should probably turn them down and um, now, generally, I do find that the kick should be a hair louder in the low end than the snare. 
You know, like if your kick is at 60 and your snare's at 180, you know, your kick could probably stand to be a little bit hotter down there than your snare. But again, that depends. I've, I, of course, as soon as I say that, I'll have a mix where that's not the case and it sounds right. But generally, you know, equal volume or maybe the snare a little bit lower in the low end, okay? Uh, in the high end, generally the snare is going to be a little bit more present, right? So that's where those energy shifts sort of come in. Um, so... Like, I'll say that again, if your kick and snare transients are too loud in the low end, below 200 hertz, you know, turn them down, just turn down the faders until it kind of sits in the track a little bit better, and then turn up some of the higher frequencies on those, you know, anywhere in the mid-range from 800 hertz to 600 hertz all the way up to 4 or 5k, just to give them a little bit more presence so you hear them, especially that'll help them be heard on smaller speakers. Um, that's the other reason that mid-range helps is that, you know, you need need to be very conscious of what's going in that mid-range because if it's just everything's blurring together it'll never sound good on a on a phone speaker it'll never sound good on a little like bluetooth clock radio it won't sound good on a tv or it won't sound good on you know a, a macbook speaker or you know a laptop of any kind um so the mid-range is so so important um, a lot of these tiny speakers that people listen to, you know, phones, etc., they're not going to produce anything really below 200 hertz, and they're not going to produce anything really above like 10, 15K, maybe, maybe not even that, maybe like 8K. Uh, so it's, I, I mean, you got to get your mid-range in check. Uh, another example is I tend to like guitars to be mostly mid-range instruments. So, I mean, electric guitars. So, you know, they don't need a ton below 100. Uh, they really don't even need a ton at 100. But they, you know, they need a little bit of low end, but they don't need a ton maybe at five to 800 hertz. You could probably dip some there. Um, but again, that depends on, on the type of guitar sound. And they don't need, you know, but they need to have a good amount of like 2K, 3K, 4K, 5K to cut and be heard. And again, that's one of those things where you have to kind of check like, well, if that section sounds too loud, uh, if that balance sounds too loud where the, you know, you might, you might try shifting the energy around a little bit, but, you know, I find that, uh, that they need a healthy amount of, you know, one to five K and, and you got to be careful because in some genres of music, um, that's not the right guitar sound, you know, to have too much of that. Um, you know, it's going to sound too modern. Um, and, and that's the other big point I want to make is like some types of music and some recordings don't lend itself to being loud. You know, it's, it's really difficult to make certain types of music and certain genres loud because the instrument tonality that is chosen for the project to get that vibe doesn't lend itself to that sound. And that's hard to describe and explain, but if you're in that situation, you'll know it. You'll know what it means because, um, you know, you let's say you're, you're recording a band and you work, you, know, you go out of your way to get like really cool guitar tones, really unique drum sounds and bass sounds and vocal sounds. But, you know, it, it ends up to be something that, you know, if you tried to EQ it like a modern rock record, you know, on the kick or the snare or on the guitars or on the vocal, it would completely lose that vibe. And so that's one of those things that you might have to be like, you know, like, 
I can't make this as loud as a modern record because the frequency spectrum is not that of a modern record. You know, things are maybe like less present in those high mids. They're a little smoother and warmer. Um, you know, they might have a little more low mid and they need to have that low mid to work, you know, and so that's just, that's just part of the deal. Like you, you might not be able to make it much louder than, you know, negative 12, negative 10, um, you know, without compromising the quality. Um, For vocals, a big one in vocals that a lot of people miss is controlling the mid-range while keeping it loud. Now, this is, uh, to me, the best way to do this is making sure that, A, you don't boost way too much top end and, like, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10K, uh, and you don't boost too much low end on a vocal. A vocal doesn't need to have tons of low end. Um, now, generally on a vocal, there's going to be something in the low mids, like 150 to 400. That's going to be a little bit sort of nasally or chesty or something that's going to sound a little, you know, muddy. And so, you know, you can cut that out, but be be careful of cutting too much of it out. Uh, but most of a vocal, like the majority of a vocal, in my opinion, tends to live between, say, 500 hertz and 2K. That's where, like, the bulk of a vocal is going to live. So one of the things that you're going to have to do is make sure that your mid-range is loud but in control. So I like using multiband compressors for this uh, and also just normal compression, just making sure that the vocal is controlled in loudness. But then... Uh, making sure that your high mids, like two, three, four, five k, don't get out of control. That's that's the reason why I think a lot of people have trouble setting the vocal because they're they'll set the vocal where it sounds good, but then the uh, the high like nasal frequencies and then the s's get in the way. So you need to get in control of those by using deessers and multiband compression. So if you set a deesser to say like two, three, four k. That'll get rid of some of that nasally stuff when it gets loud. And you've got to use a de-esser because those S's will poke out at you and sound really loud and harsh. So you've got to use the de-esser up top as well uh, in like the 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10K region um, to, to take down some of those S's. And, you know, again, this isn't going to happen on every vocal. Some vocalists aren't very S-y, but other vocalists are really S-y. I mean, there have been times when I've used three or four different de-essers on a vocal. Again, each one doing little bits in certain frequency ranges just to control it. Um, the other thing you can do is use a compressor that has a sidechain filter and use that to trigger, you know, use the S's to trigger the compressor. That can work pretty well, too. Uh, the other thing you can do is automate every single S, but that takes a long time. Now, it does sound cleaner, generally, but it takes a long time. Um, so you got to keep those vocals loud, and but controlled. And having a little bit of presence on the vocal up top is totally fine. Just watch how much you do. Uh, and if you're going to add top end, you almost have to DS, because as you add top end, you're going to bring out those S's even more. Um, bass, again, you don't need a ton of, like... 2, 3, 4K, uh, you don't need a ton of that. It's nice to have some, but you don't need a lot of it. Uh, and you're going to need some sort of mid-range presence in there for the bass to be heard on small speakers. I really like using distortion on bass, because like I said, you can get away with a good amount of distortion on bass uh, and it not sound distorted in the track. And you can also get away with a lot of compression on bass and it not sound crazy compressed in the track. 
Now, again, that's not going to work in every song. An, an example of this is if you've got a slower song that's in 6-8, for example, you know, where it's like, bum, 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 right, like that. If you don't let that bass sustain and ring out and sort of die, and it's just like, bah, no level changes, it doesn't go, bah, bah. If it doesn't do that, it won't feel right, because you need that sort of that sway to make that slower 6-8 song feel right. Okay, that's a great example of when I say something like, it depends on the song, and you know, how I compress something, that's a great example, because if you over-compress a bass like that, the song won't feel right. Um, it won't feel right to have it go ba 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 with zero level changes, because that 6-8 feel will be completely ruined. So it has to have a little bit of that bum 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 to kind of drive along that, you know, that feel. I hope that made sense. Um, uh, another thing is you got to make sure that your drum bus is, you know, is is in check. This is one of the biggest ones that I find is that, um, you know, the drums as a whole just don't seem glued. You know, it seems like the kick and snare and toms are like poking out, but the whole drum set doesn't really sound glued. So I highly recommend using drum bus compression if you're not already. And if you are, maybe use a little bit more, but then use it in parallel as well. That will really help the drums sort of sit and combine and glue. Um, you know, I like to use compression on the drums in a lot of different ways. Uh, I just did a session the other day that I was really happy with the drum sound. And I think I did like uh, six to one ratio. I don't remember the attack and release pretty fast, probably, at least on the release. Um, probably decently fast on the attack. I was compressing about eight dB, but it was 50% wet, so it was only halfway blended in, and so that really helped to glue the drums together. Now, I probably would never compress the drums 8 dB unless it was parallel. If it was, you know, non-parallel, I might only do 2 or 3 dB, but again, that depends on how much you need to glue that track together. Um... You just got to mess with it. You got to try different things and you got to, you know, over time you'll get better at, at figuring out like, okay, this is this type of song, this type of drum sound, this type of drummer, it's this fast, it's got this type of groove and all those things kind of add up in your mind and, and you say, all right, I think I probably need to try this type of compression. And the longer you do this and the better you get at it, you won't have to search through 10 different compressors to find something that works. You'll probably just have to search through maybe one or two or maybe take one and just tweak the settings. Um, but if you're mixing from presets, if you put up a, you know, a compressor that says drum bus and, you know, and you're expecting it to work, you know, that's not how this job is done. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a purist in a way. And, um, I, that's not the job description. It's not mixing from presets. You know what I mean? It, we all hate it when we call somewhere and they're reading from a prompt and they're like, hello, sir, my name is blah, blah, blah. How may I help you today? You know, and it, and it feels lifeless and boring. That's what I view mixing from presets like, you know, is reading from a prompt. You're, you're not actually like thinking for yourself and listening and doing things like from an honest, like, I'm listening to this. I'm going to put something on it to make it better. I'm responding to what I'm hearing. You're not actually doing that. You're just reading from a, you know what I mean? You're just color by number. You know, it's not really what audio engineering and mixing are. Um, anyway, I'll continue on. 
um, keys, you know, keys are really tricky because they need a, they need a lot of mid range to sound like keys. You know, if you start cutting too much 200 to 400, it's not going to sound like a piano anymore. It's going to sound like a, a digital emulation of a piano. Um, but piano takes up a lot of space in a mix. So generally I find myself in a modern mix, you got to compress piano decently heavily. And again, I probably would do that in parallel. Um, but I, I can't say for sure. Uh, if it's not a modern mix, if it's like a jazz song or whatever, you really need to consider automating the piano. And for me, um, you know, automation on a piano is very common because it's a very dynamic instrument. Um, we'll get, we'll talk about automation here in a second, but other than that, I mean, there's a lot of other things I could go into backing vocals, you know, backing vocals can be pretty heavily compressed. Um, even, you know, compared to the lead vocal, they can be pretty heavily compressed and because they need to, uh, they need to sit sort of behind the vocal and, but still be heard. Um, and they don't need tons of dynamic, um, anyway, the, the point of all this is I could go on and on about different like rules of thumb and, and considerations, but it really all depends on your mix and it really depends on, um, you know, what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're trying to accomplish from that mix. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a lot of subtle stages. Now, the last thing I want to talk about with the mixing is, uh, automation because this is a big one. This is another big thing when it comes to making things sound loud, um, when it comes to, uh, once you compress things and sort of like squeeze them a little bit and get a little bit, you know, you might be worried by compressing and say, oh, well, it's going to remove the dynamics from it. Yeah, I mean, it does a little bit. But uh, if you automate heavily after the fact, you can bring some of those dynamics back. You can build some dynamics back into the track. And one of the ways you can do that is by essentially automating everything in the mix. Now, you don't have to do every single channel, you know, but you could automate, you could start by automating big things and automating buses, okay? Like I've said a lot, I like to work big to small. So this is what I like to do. I like to set my drums and leave them at a certain level and, uh, you know, keep my basic frame and I'll start generally by automating bass and drums. So I'll have those on two faders and I'll automate bass and drums. So they'll basically end up being pulled down a little bit in the verses, you know, push them up on fills, on drum fills, you know, push them up at exciting moments on transitions, you know, and push them up a little bit on the choruses um, so that you have this sort of subtle, and it doesn't have to be a lot, you know, I can't tell you how much, you know, half a dB, a dB, two dB, three dB, I don't know, because that also depends on your master bus. If you have a master bus compressor on, you might have to pull it down a little bit because the master bus compressor is kind of fighting back at you, and that's okay, but... I can't tell you how many dB to drop it. You understand? So, um, and then I'll do the same for bass. Kind of pull the bass down a little bit. And, um, you know, I'm automating one with one hand and one with the other. So uh, I'm not necessarily moving them together. Then I might automate guitars. You know, you push up guitar riffs. You push up exciting moments. You push up uh, little slides or like cool little mistakes or anything like that that, that can be accentuated in a cool way. Um, and then uh, I'll automate keys or strings or synths or anything else in the same fashion. And then I'll automate the lead vocal generally towards the end to make sure that it's heard all over of those things. You know, you want to make sure that you can hear every word. And uh, that's another thing is that you don't have to do necessarily crazy amounts of compression if you do really good automation because the automation will allow those things to be heard. Now, of course, again, that depends on the instrument. Um, 
But on a vocal, you don't have to just crush a vocal um, because if you crush a vocal, you know, you're going to hear probably every word pretty loudly. But again, after you automate some life back into the song with the drums and the bass and the guitars and the keys and all that stuff, then, um, you know, the vocal needs to be automated as well to compete and be heard. Then you automate the backing vocals. I usually automate the lead towards the end and then the backing vocals after that because the, the backing vocals all hinge on the lead. Uh, and after you've done all this, you know, I generally find that I'll have to go into specific tracks, you know, maybe like the snare or the kick or toms or, you know, maybe even hi-hat. Um, and then maybe on the bass, I might have to go into like the distortion or fuzz or amp track as opposed to just the DI and turn it up and down. Like if the bass seems a little bit too obviously distorted in the intro or in like a down section, you know, you have to pull that stuff down so that you're living mostly with the DI or a clean amp. Um, you know, you got to automate strings and horns and, you know, pianos, making sure that the piano doesn't get out of control. Um, another useful thing I find is to automate the width of the piano because pianos take up a bunch of space in a mix. And so sometimes it's useful to, uh, pull the width down in the verses and keep it a little bit more narrow using, you know, some sort of plug-in like a Waves S1 or anything to sort of narrow it out. Uh, and then push it back to normal in the choruses. I don't like to do, you know, normal in the verses and then uber wide in the choruses. I prefer on piano to do it the other way. You know, hard left and right is the widest that it goes, and I'll narrow it from there. But that's just me. I've heard it done other ways, and it works just fine. Uh, but you, I, I'm, I'm trying to be very, very careful about what I use, like mid-side processing on and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, there are tons of things that you can automate. And again, I talk about this in my book and there's lots of great resources all over the internet to, uh, to check out this stuff about automation. But my book particularly, I feel has one of the most detailed descriptions of automation out there. Um, uh, again, my book is called three dimensional mixing. Um, the second edition is coming very soon. I know I've been saying that for a long time, but I promise you it's coming very soon. And the good news is for all of you that have purchased the book in PDF form, you'll get the updated PDF for free. It's not going to be any cost to you. You've already purchased the PDF. Now I can't give you a discount or do it for free on the hard copy because of how I'm selling it on the internet, but, uh, I wish I could, but it will be in hard copy form and, uh, well, it might actually be in paperback. I haven't quite figured crunched all the numbers quite yet, but I'm still in the process of formatting it for uh, hardcover or paperback and making sure that it will work in, as a physical copy. And there's a lot of details and stuff uh, that I am still working on, you know, even down to like margins and, uh, you know, all that stuff. But beside the point, um, I want to make sure that it's great and I want to make sure that it's a great update. But even still, my book, uh, Three Dimensional Mixing, which is in PDF form now at threedimensionalmixing.com, and that's spelled out T H R E E, um, has a very, very comprehensive chapter on automation. And it talks about why I might automate something, where I might automate it, uh, you know, why you do that and why that's important. And one reason why we have to bring back some dynamics is because we, you know, compress stuff and we, you know, EQ stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, automation is super important and it helps things continually keep your interest. And that again, helps a song sound loud because there's something popping out at you when the vocals, not singing something kind of pushes up and is heard. So 
on average, our average level is sort of brought up because there's something popping out at you. Um, and again, you can go too far with any of this stuff. You can go too far with automation. You can go too far with compression and EQ. Uh, so you got to be careful of that. But it takes practice. You know, all these things hopefully have given you some considerations for mixing for loudness and even recording for loudness. Okay. Like, uh, you know, making sure that your transients are in check, making sure that you're using nice microphones and preamps for the source, making sure that, you know, you're hopefully, if you can afford it, you know, adding some, integrating some analog gear into the equation, some, maybe an analog compressor or an analog EQ. If I had to tell you to get one thing, I would say, you know, get a nice analog compressor like an 1176, or if you can afford it, a decent tube compressor, um, you know, maybe like a Summit TLA 100, um, something that you can use to just shave off some transients on a vocal or on a bass or on an acoustic guitar or something like that. Uh, or, or if you can afford a stereo pair, that'd be great. Um, I don't recommend making your first tube compressor an LA 2A cause I love the LA 2A, but it doesn't quite do the same thing that I'm talking about. It's a fairly clean compressor. Now you can drive it and get some cool things out of it, but um, I would actually recommend something a little bit more versatile, something like a, the Summit. Um, as far as EQs, uh, there's lots of great EQs out there and preamps. You know, I think a great preamp, uh, one of my favorites is actually the AML EZ1073. It's a fairly affordable preamp, um, you know, but it's 500 series and it sounds really good. I also like the Vintech stuff and I also like uh, the Avitas preamps. I also like API. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, if you have a specific question, feel free to email me and I can try to help you pick some gear for your own specific needs. Um, anyway, I, I hope this thing is, this whole podcast has given you some considerations and, and hopefully it helps your mixes uh, come to life. And I, and I realize that, you know, it, it, all this stuff and in a lot of my podcasts are difficult because um, it's hard to say definitively for any given style. Um, but I, I'm confident that with if you just implement some of these things and slowly start thinking about it a little bit more, you can uh, mix for loudness much better. As always, I appreciate you guys listening. I hope that this has been informative. Feel free to send me an email with comments, questions, and show suggestions. Please send me your show suggestions at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also, make sure to check out the blog, recordinglounge.blogspot.com. Sign up for our mailing list at recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up. One word there. Okay, that's S-I-G-N-U-P. Uh, and that's again, no spam. I update you on podcasts when they come out or if any, if I find anything cool on the internet to share or have any cool stories to share, I'll send those out as well. If you want to support this podcast with a monthly donation through PayPal, you can do that over at the blog, which is recordinglounge.blogspot.com. There should be a button that says donate to the recording lounge. Um, or you can sign up through Patreon, which is a really cool website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, to become a patron of the podcast where you a donation will come out every time that I make a podcast rather than monthly. Uh, if you feel that's more fair or that's something that, that you can get behind as opposed to PayPal. I will warn you, though, I've had some international listeners say that uh, if you are outside of the U.S., 
that uh, Patreon has some pretty extensive fees for that. Uh, so PayPal might be a better option. Uh, just warning you in advance. Um, so thanks for letting me know, guys. I appreciate that. I don't want anyone to pay unnecessary fees for that. For, you know, if you want to donate five bucks a month, but then the fee is four dollars. I mean, that that's kind of strange. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash recording lounge. You can get my book at threedimensionalmixing.com in PDF form. Like I said, you will get a free upgrade to the PDF, to the new PDF of the second edition, which is coming hopefully by the end of July. That's my goal. Um, and then the hard copy will come soon as well. As always, keep recording, keep mixing, keep practicing, keep listening. I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks.